Our Father, we, with humble hearts, ask you to do the very things that we've just, in essence, asked you to do through song and through the prayers of our hearts, is that you would speak to us, that you would reveal the glory of Christ in us, that you would lift our hearts outside of what we merely see with our eyes to those things that are unseen, the glories of heaven, where we are to set our minds where Christ is, in whom our life is hidden, in whom we wait to return from heaven. Help us to rise with the eyes of faith, with hearts yielded to your authority, with faith that embraces your promises and finds in them all of our comfort and our joys and our delights. Create those things in us. We pray in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Well, go ahead and be opening up your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. It's nice to see that, uh, you know, there's, we're a little more full, so that's good. There were, some, there were some champions that, you know, championed the cause last week, so appreciate that. Uh, that's helpful. For those who didn't hear, it was, uh, everybody was kind of like congregated in the back like a herd under a tree, and you came up, and I thought it was something personal. But anyway, we're glad that, that you moved up. Well, as we open this letter again, or to this letter again of Peter, the letter of First Peter, uh, the letter of First Peter, uh, we're going to come this morning to verses three through five, three through five, and I want to introduce it just very briefly by reminding us of this truth, the truth that Peter's going to build off of and is behind his encouragement to those to whom he's writing, the recipients of the letter, and it's something that we know innately and by experience as merely being human beings who live in this world. And that is this, that everything in this world is subject to change. We even sang about that uh, in the amazing grace, that the earth will soon dissolve like snow. Everything here is going to come to an end. Nothing that we see, that we touch, that we feel, that we experience in this world is permanent. It's always subject to change. Nothing is certain in our lives, even just in a general sense. Your job isn't certain. How many times have we even among our own fellowship and those we know uh, are faced with the fact that a place that they've worked for for many years might let them go and they might be jobless and be in the job market, something that they haven't had to do for a long time. Our children aren't permanent. God can take them away. We don't know what they're going to do, where they're going to be, where they're going to be with the Lord in 10, 15, 20 years. Our health isn't permanent. It can change in a blink of an eye. Some of us know a dear friend to some who wakes up, gets a diagnosis of stage one cancer, gets treatment, and is dead by the end of the week. A young man, well, my age. Young in life, not yet older. Their life was dramatically changed in the matter of a week, less than 10 days. Everything is subject to change. Our homes can change, where we live, the kind of home we live in. Our nation is subject to change. It might be a shock to some, but the nation of America will not exist forever. America is not the eternal kingdom and the kingdom of Christ. It's a nation like every other nation that was raised up by God and that will fall by God's hand by the weight of its own iniquity. The Roman Empire was thought never to be able to be destroyed, and it was destroyed. 
And it was a shock to the world. Our nation too will end. The point is, is that nothing is permanent in this world. Nothing's going to last forever in this world. Everything is subject to change. Some changes we see coming, some changes we don't see coming. But we know that nothing is established in this world to last forever. It's certainly right for us to hope that things will work out for the best, but we can't guarantee that they will. We can't 100% guarantee every anything because we don't know the future and nobody in this room and no living being here has the power to assure the future. There's only one who has that power, and that is God himself, who is omnipotent, who spoke the universe into existence by his own power and for his own glory, who rules it by his own might and by his own word for his own purposes and will bring everything to his attended end that he had decided before he created one molecule. God alone has that power. God alone can give us a promise and assure it. God alone can give us a word and say that it is absolutely unshakable and it is firm. God alone can do that. And that's exactly what God has done for us and for these believers in the letter of 1 Peter. He's reminding them of the unshakable promises of God when everything in their world, for many of them, has been turned upside down. They have been made to feel and experience within themselves the uncertainties of this world. Some cast out of the lands that were their home by birth. Some cast out of families. Some ostracized from communities. A variety of things that they've had to endure. Everything could be subject to change, even this very life. And Peter is reminding them to stand firm on those things that do not change and to rejoice in them. Somebody captured the idea of these verses well. Put it in these words and I'm going to borrow from them. These people need a larger perspective, which the author, Peter, provides, not in psychological or sociological terms of self-esteem, but by helping them, i.e. us, see their privileged place in the context of God's plan for history, a privilege they had not achieved but had been granted by God's grace. And so what Scripture is always doing and what Peter is particularly doing here in this section and throughout the whole entire epistle, but especially in this first part, is to change our perspective, to help us to rise out of the present circumstances, to view things in the larger context of God's plan and God's purposes for this world and for His people, to to understand the promises that have been given to us, the promises that we're to find our comfort and our rest in, and in these promises alone. Not in this world. So let me read the passage and then uh, we'll try to cover it this morning. I'm committed to do that. Uh, Let's begin with me in verse 3 and I'll read down to verse 5. Beginning in verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. I want to break this up just in two simple uh, categories. The first one will be the shorter one. Uh, And it The categories are this, a declaration of praise or a declaration of worship, and then the grounds for our worship. 
A declaration of worship and then the grounds of our worship. Let's look first at the declaration of worship. A declaration or a statement of the worship of God. A statement of praise, you could say. He says in the beginning of verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is pretty striking because, again, he's writing to those who are bearing consequences for their faith in this world. And we think maybe of how we would approach some of these things or how they are. You immediately want to emphasize and maybe say how bad it is and you're so sorry for the circumstances that have come because of your faith. But Peter doesn't do that. What he does from the very opening letter or words of his letter, even to write here, is he lifts them out of their circumstances and he focuses their attention on God and in the context of worship, of worship. And he starts it out then with blessed, blessed. And the reason he does this is because if you are a Christian and you have been united to Christ and you believed the gospel, there's nothing that so lifts the burden of the struggles of this world, particularly those associated with our faith in Christ, nothing that so sustains our hearts in trial than this, a full sight of the glory of God. A full sight of the glory of God. That's what strengthens our heart, is when we remember who God is. We remember his majesty, his sovereignty, when we remember the wonders of grace that he's shown to us. That's the comfort and the strength of our heart. When we're burdened and we're weighed down and when we're anxious and when we're worried, the answer and the solution to that is just what Peter does here, is to take our thoughts off of our circumstances, those things that are a threat to us and a threat to our soul, and to lift them again to God, to remember who he is and what he has done for us, to think of his majesty. So he uses this term here, blessed, to draw us in, uh, to in that direction. Blessed. Uh, it's a word that's used eight times in the New Testament. It refers to the Father. It's a term that's actually reserved just to the Father. So this is a different word than in the Beatitudes. That's a different word for blessed here. This one directly has to do with the idea of praise. It has to do with the idea of worship. And it's used actually only of God, the Father, and once possibly of Christ in Romans 9.5, which is most likely their reference to Christ. It's, it's an acknowledgement of a redeemed heart of the praise that belongs to God alone, even in this case in the midst of suffering. And again, it changes our perspective on everything. Calvin caught it well this way. He said, The knowledge of God's benefits avails much, for when their value appears to us, all other things will be deemed worthless especially when we consider what Christ and his blessings are, for everything without him is but dross. And so Peter takes this reality of the glory of God and salvation and he draws his readers in and he draws us in and he says, lift your eyes up to the one who is deserving of all of our praise, all of the blessedness, and find your strength and your comfort there. Now, just as a side note here, this isn't saying that we bless God in one sense it's like we're, we're adding blessing to God. God cannot be more blessed than he is. He is the blessed one. All blessings come from God. It's not saying that we somehow bless God in a way, in any way, add to him. Of course not. It's an acknowledgement. It's a recognition of his glory. It's a praise of our lips to him who has provided us with all things, describing to him all glory, honor, and praise. And then he does something here that would have been striking or is striking 
particularly as a Jew, particularly to the ears of a Jew, is he takes what is a common Jewish blessing, a common Jewish prayer, which began, blessed are you, O God. That was very common. And he attaches it to this new revealed reality of God that exploded on the scene with Christ. And he looks at the nature of God. And he doesn't say just blessed is God, which they would have been very used to, but he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a distinctly Christian view of God. It is an understanding of God as he's revealed in Christ and in all of Scripture, pointing to Christ, that is possessed only by true believers, only by Christians, namely that God is a trinity. We were already introduced to that fact at the very beginning of the letter in the previous verse that when he's talking about our salvation, the foreknowledge of God the Father, sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. And in fact, everything that God has done and is doing is a work that involves the fullness of God, the Father and the Son and the Spirit, which points us again and unfolds for us the greatness of his majesty. And so he says here that blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he's called the Father. He was called the Father in the Old Testament. And in several places, actually. And collectively as a nation, they would call God our Father. Particularly in Isaiah, there's a few places where he does that. But this idea of the fatherhood of God with the appearance of Christ just exploded. And it took on an entirely different dimension. But it took on a dimension specifically because of the Father's relationship to Christ, which Peter draws out here. He says, the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now the Father and God is understood as Father, no longer simply in the sense of being the Father of the nation, the God of all things, but particularly He's the Father of Jesus Christ, who is the Son, who is the Son. And he is particularly, though the Son incarnate, the God of Jesus Christ, who is yet God himself. And so there's a mystery here, even in this statement. As a matter of fact, Paul will say in Ephesians 1.17, he will call God the Father, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. And so if we're paying attention to this, we're asking ourselves, in what way is God, God the Father, God of the Lord Jesus Christ? Isn't Jesus Christ God? Isn't he equal to God in every way? How then could Peter or Paul call him the God of our Lord Jesus Christ and Peter do the same here, as is Paul also does in many of his letters? I think the clearest way to explain that is this. And I won't spend a lot of time on this, but I want to make you aware. And now borrow this. This is a succinct statement. God is the God of Christ as Christ is man, and he's the Father of Christ as Christ is God. So when he says that he is the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in relation to the Son's deity, in relation to Jesus' divine nature as the Son incarnate. In other words, the Father is only the Father in relation to the Son. The Son is only the eternal Son in relation to the Father. And the Spirit is the eternal Spirit in relation to the Father and the Son. So when he calls God as the Father of Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, it is a statement there of Christ's deity. It is a statement of the nature of God as a triunity. Jesus said this, well, 
in many, many places. Let me just give you one example of this. In John chapter 5, he says this of the Father who has given all judgment to him, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Even in his humbled state of the incarnation, he acknowledges that he is one by his own nature who is worthy and not only is worthy, but it is required to give him the same honor, the same praise and the same worship as the God of Israel that they know as Father. In that sense, he is the Father of Jesus in terms of his divine nature. He's also a God to Jesus and that's the part that throws us off the most. How is he God to Jesus? He's God to Jesus in his incarnate state. He's God to Jesus in terms of his humanity. Remember that Paul reminds us in Philippians 2 that he existed in the form of God. He set aside the enjoyment of those glories that he had in heaven. And he humbled himself and he covered over the fullness of the glory by fully adding to himself humanity. And in that sense, he was made like us. And he became a servant and a slave all the way to obey to obedience, to obedience to the cross. So John says, though he existed uh, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, he was what God, was God. All things came into being by him. Apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. He is one who shares this divine glory and honor of deity with the Father and with the Spirit. But if that's true, then again, how then is he his God? What does he mean by that? Well, though he's God, the Son, and the flesh, again, he was truly human. This is what John continues to say. And he who was God took on flesh, and we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. So this is the mystery of the incarnation right here at the beginning. As a man, he was born and fully experienced life as a man. Christ did. He grew in his knowledge of God. He grew in his love for God. He learned obedience and ever-deepening levels. He trusted and depended on God as God. As a man depends on God. So Christ did. And yet, as God, he is to be loved equally with the Father. He is to be honored equally with the Father. He is to be worshipped equally with the Father. He is to be obeyed equally with the Father. He is to be trusted and prayed to as so the Father. So in his deity, the Father is eternally his Father. In his humanity, the Father is also his God. Each of these realities are displayed in the incarnation and each are consistent with his eternal relationship to the Father as the eternal Son of God. Now, why is all that important? Because, and this is where Peter is wanting us to grasp the significance of this for ourselves, and that's this, that in Jesus, we said, we sang it this morning, that one with himself we cannot die. In Jesus... In our union with Christ by the Spirit, that relationship that he has to God as the incarnate Son is one that we are made to participate in. So a Christian in Christ can call God Father in a way that nobody else can call him the Father. The liberals want to say the universal fatherhood of God. That's not where Scripture points to us. There's only one Group who can call God Father and those who are in union with His Son. And this is precisely, and I'm just going to mention this because we're going to move on. But I want you to feel this a bit, the significance of this statement. This is why, though, Jesus could say, I read it last week in verse 17 of John 20. I'll just read it. Jesus said to 
Mary, he said, stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. Jesus is there identifying a distinction in his relationship and yet also a similarity that we share. So the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ is the God and the Father to those who are in Christ in the most intimate and the most wonderful way. And this is why Peter would later say in verse 17, if you address his father, the one who impartially judges. This is why Paul would say in Galatians 4 and Romans 8, the Spirit motivates in us and wells up in us to go to the Father in prayer and cry, Abba, Father, with the Spirit of Sonship. And so this is a glorious testimony to these believers who had put all of their faith in Christ. And as he says, by putting their faith in Christ, in verse 21, you put your faith and your hope in God, the God of Jesus Christ. And so this is an incredible word of encouragement because he's saying here that the God of Christ, the God whom Christ revealed, is your God and he's your Father. The Father of Christ is your Father. The God of Christ is your God. He is the one to whom you are to lift your eyes and to find your confidence. He is the one to whom you are to set your minds on and find strength to rise out of the suffering that you are now enduring. So first he points us just to God and to the nature of God and and an attitude of praise. Let's look at the, the larger point, the rest of the verse. And this is the grounds of our worship. What are the grounds of our worship? Well, the ground of our worship, of course, ultimately is just who God is. We worship Him for who He is, but... Here he grounds it in the promises and the work of God. And so the ground of worship, he says this, this God, this God of Jesus Christ, he who is the Father of Christ in whom Christ is equal to in honor and glory, this God is the one who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again. He's caused us to be born again. So what is the first foundation of this worship? Is that this God has given us new life. He's given us new life. It's the mercy of the new birth. The Father has caused us to be born again. Again, that's interesting. That's striking. Because usually in Scripture, the work of the new birth is assigned to who? Spirit, right? It's the Spirit. It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. We're born of the Spirit, Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. That's a work that's usually assigned to the Spirit. Sometimes it's even assigned to... To Christ, yet here it is particularly assigned to the Father, because ultimately every work of redemption originates in the Father. It is the Father who adopted us in Christ. It is the Father who sent the Son. It is the Father here who is ultimately the originator of our life in Christ, of our life in Christ. It is the Father who has called us to be sons and daughters in His Son. This was the plan of the Father. Of the Father. And so here He says, this Father, as He's already made clear in His opening introduction, this Father who has foreknown you intimately before the foundation of the world is the Father who has not only elected you, He said that in verse 1, these are the elect, but He is the Father who has given you life in His Son. And it's a great, great mercy, a great mercy of God. Now, this born again, he says, has caused you to be born again. We 
we put that under what is a theological category of regeneration. He's caused you to be regenerated. Now, as you know, in Scripture, that term is actually only used twice. It's used in Matthew 19, 28 to refer to the renewal of this present earth under the, in the kingdom of Christ when he comes and he establishes his kingdom here. And it's used in Titus 3, 5 to speak of that inward spiritual renewal, that spiritual grace of new life for those who are redeemed. But it's described in a variety of ways in Scripture. Let me just remind you, because I want to get to why this is so important and how this is an encouragement. It's described as being made alive together with Christ in Ephesians 2. It's described as being brought from death to life in Romans chapter 6. It's described later in Peter, 2 Peter, as being partakers of the divine nature. It's described in Ephesians 4 as created in righteousness and holiness of truth. All of those things are pointing to what Peter is saying here is the work of the Father. In His great mercy, He's caused us to be born again. We now have life, not death. We now participate in His divine holiness through Christ. We now participate in His truth, in His righteousness. We're new creatures. And He's saying, God has done that for you. Paul said, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. It's to be brought into an entirely new sphere of existence and spiritual reality. It is to take the first taste of the age that is to come. New delights, new interests, new fears, new goals, all related to a new relationship with God. And it's the Father who has done this. Now, why did He say this? He didn't say this to give us a theological lesson. He didn't say it to give them a spiritual uh, theological quiz that they would later have to define all of these things. He said it to them to encourage them and to encourage us. He says this is a result of His great mercy. Of His great mercy. How then is this to encourage them? How is it to encourage us? How does that produce worship? Well, it's kind of obvious. Because He's reminding them of the sheer magnitude of what God has done. Remember, he's changing their perspective on who they are. In the first few verses, he was affirming to them their identity as the redeemed in Christ. The very first words of identification to these people is you are the elect. You are the chosen ones. You are the ones who have been chosen and called out of the world. You are the elect exiles in the ESV. He sets their identity in the very opening words and here he's connecting it to the great mercy and to the great love of the Father. And he's saying, recognize the magnitude of what God has done for you, what God has actually given to you. He's given to you life. And the reason that's important is because apart from God causing you to be born again is you remained in death. The Father was not one to be trusted and loved. He was instead a judge. But God, by His own doing, has changed your situation. He's changed it. He's made you a son. He's made you a daughter. He's made you a recipient of grace and of mercy. Recognize what God has done for you. And God has done this. It's not something that you did by your own power, by your own piety, by your own righteousness. He's saying God has shown you a mercy. He's chosen you. He's given you the gift of life. He's called you to Himself. You were a child of the devil. You were, as Paul said in Ephesians 2, and I was a child of wrath. In 2 Peter 2, he'll say you were accursed children. 
In 1 John, he said you were children of the devil. That's who you were, but that's not who you are anymore. Why? Because God had caused you to be born again. God has chosen you before the foundation of the world. God has sent his son and then sent the the spirit of his son that you might cry out, Abba, Father. That you might know him as a father. Recognize the magnitude of what God has done to your soul. You were helpless and now you have everything, every spiritual blessing in Christ. It is a great, great mercy. And so here is the key. In addition to that, why is this so comforting? Because this is the key idea in it. He's saying in this, and he's magnifying to them, you are recipients of divine mercy, and here it is, your circumstances are consistent with his mercy to you and his love to you. They're not in conflict. Now, can you imagine, here we've trusted in Christ. Here we've received this, and we're dispelled from our homes. We're cut out from our families. We're suffering on every side. Our future is uncertain. Does God still love us? Is his mercy still in our lives? And by doing this right at the beginning, Peter is saying, recognize who you are. Your circumstances are not inconsistent with God's mercy to you. They are consistent with his mercy to you. And his his grace in upholding you in the midst of these circumstances and his promises that he's given to you in the midst of them is an expression of his mercy, an expression of his great love and his great care for you. Have you ever thought that? Do you ever get to a trial, just in general, or some kind of suffering, particularly if it's a suffering for your faith, and does Satan tempt you to despair, as we sing about at times? Is God's mercy still? Does God still love me? Is God's mercy still evident in my life? Or do we say sometimes, like the psalmist, has he become my enemy? Has he set himself against me? And Paul is saying, or Peter is saying, no, no, you're children of God. You're the chosen ones. He has shown you a great mercy. You have life in him, and he's done that for you. And what is the fruit of that? Well, he gives two primary. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You've been born to a certain hope. Here he calls it a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Again, this is a word of great encouragement to us. Hope is essential to humanity. Like everybody needs hope, right? Just by being a human, you need hope. What is the worst thing that can happen is when somebody loses hope. When somebody loses hope, they lose everything. They lose life. They lose the will to live. They lose the will to go on. It's absolutely devastating to someone. You lose hope. And there's all kinds of things that work against us to cause us to lose hope. But he's saying, no, you've received the mercy of God. You've received life. You're chosen by God. And you have been born again to a living hope. A hope. You have then a future that God has assured to you through his grace in your life. It's something you can't see now. It's something that you can't touch You can't feel, you can't look at it, you can't Google it and find it on the internet. It's a hope that's promised to you in the word of God. It's a hope that's declared to you in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's a hope that one day will no longer be hope, but it will be sight. That's what Paul says in Romans 8. He says, for in hope we have been saved. 
In hope we have been saved. What happens in salvation? You've been given hope. You've been given an assurance, a divine promise by God that has present realities but has future glories that are untold in their glory. He says, For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we eagerly wait for it. And he says, that's what you've been born into, is a hope, a living hope, a promise that cannot be taken away from you. It's a living hope, because it's a hope in the living God. And it's the living God who encourages us through his living word and the living spirit who is in us. It's an expression, then, of being made alive together with Christ, of being born again. It's hope in Christ. It's a hope that's born out of God's work in redemption. But he's speaking here primarily of the internal experience. It's something that's inside. It's not something that can be purchased. It's not something that can simply be conjured up. It's something that is an energizing and an active force in the lives of those who are united with Christ. It's a living hope. It's not simply just the truths of the gospel aren't simply those things that for believers are to be put on the shelf and they just sit there. It's a living hope. In other words, it's the kind of, it's the truths about who you are in Christ and as recipients of God's mercy that give an inner confidence, confidence of a future salvation that forms the foundation for our life. If you're a Christian, the hope you have in the future should frame everything about your life. That is your worldview. What is your worldview? It is this living hope. That's your worldview. It's your inheritance that you have in Christ. It should shape your desires. It's a hope that shapes and sets your goals. It's a hope that comforts our hearts in every heavy loss. It's a hope that encourages us in the face of danger and trial. It's a hope that is living and active. It's an energizing hope. It's a working hope. It's an active hope. It's in contrast to the dead faith of those in James chapter 2 that don't work, that aren't energized by this. But he says, for you, that's not the case. It's a living, it's a living hope. It motivates you to live and to understand your circumstances in the larger picture of God's plan and to remain faithful and obedient again in adversity. That's what this hope should do. It's not a nice idea. It doesn't just make us feel better. It activates our entire lives. And only the Christian can have this hope. But Christians have this hope that is utterly distinct from the world. That's why he says later in this epistle in chapter 3, verse 15, that people are going to ask you to what? Give an account for the hope that is in you. Give an account for why is your life different? Why are you not destroyed and wrecked by the things that we're destroyed and wrecked with? Why are you not conforming to the world that we so love? What is the hope that is in you that makes you different? It's a living hope. It's the kind of hope that enables a wife to be submissive to her husband even when she's disobedient to the word. That's the kind of hope that it is. That's what he says in chapter 5 or verse chapter five, verse 5 of verse chapter 3 for in this way after he said wives be obedient to your or be submissive to your husbands even when they're disobedient to the word model the women of old who hoped in God who hoped in God it's the kind of hope that he says in chapter 4 allows you to be maligned by those who you used to run with and sin but no longer do 
It's the kind of hope that allows you to rise beyond that. It's the kind of hope that allows you to not fall to the temptations of the devil who is trying to destroy you. He says that in verse 10. He says, After you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That's those who have hope. Those who have hope. It's because of the hope, the certain guarantee that Christ had that he endured the cross. It's the hope, it's the living hope that we have in Christ that enables us not to give in to the lust of our soul that rage war against us, but to keep our behavior excellent. You see, it's a living hope. It's a living hope. If you have this hope, it's active, he says. It's a hope that energizes everything you do because it sets your hearts on the promises of God. It defines who you are. It sets your circumstances in a biblical perspective in the light of eternity. It's the hope that allows us to love one another. Isn't that interesting? Paul says that in Colossians 5. He says, he says, he noted to them, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, you don't have to turn there, it's chapter 1, verse 5. He says, it's because of that hope that these Colossian believers displayed love for all of the saints. It was a hope in the Father who had transferred us from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved Son. It was the hope that caused Paul to suffer. And he says what he's received is the hope of glory, the certain hope of future glory in Christ. So it's a hope. Do you have that hope? Do you have that hope? Do you have that hope? Is that where you run when everything turns upside down? In the struggles that some of you have that are daily and that are deep, that don't have any necessary end in sight? Where is your hope? It can't be that the circumstances will change because they may not. It can't be that something magical is just going to happen and change everything about you. They may not. Your hope is found in this, that you are a child of God and he has caused you by his great mercy to be born again and it's a mercy that envelops your life and will never let you go. It's a mercy that gives you a perspective beyond this world and makes you not a slave to your circumstances, but an overcomer in Christ. And that's what he's telling them. And it's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, there's some question here about where this, what this phrase is to be attached to. Like, is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to be attached to being born again? In other words, is he saying that you were born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead? Or by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead? Or is he to be attached with the word hope? And he's saying your hope is secured and grounded in the fact that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. Not to get technical, but grammatically it could go either way. It could go either way. There's no, there's no silver bullet in terms of the way that the language is. There's arguments that are good on both sides. But I don't think we need to make that decision or make such a sharp distinction. While there is a certain nuance, this idea of a living hope attached to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead includes both ideas. In other words, it's a living hope. Why? Because who lives? What do we say it on April? Because Christ lives. It's a living hope, and it's a living hope in the life that we have because Christ has purchased that life for his people. So he could say then to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Why? Because our eternal life is in Christ. 
And our eternal life is secured by the fact that he was raised from the dead. So it is the resurrection of Jesus Christ who purchased for us the life that is given to us in regeneration. In that sense, it is attached to being caused to being born again. But it's also the resurrection of Jesus Christ that guarantees for us that every promise in him is yes and amen in Christ. It guarantees for us that every promise that God has given to us, he will fulfill and none of them will fail. It is the, prom- the resurrection of Jesus Christ that affirms that he was in fact the son of God. His atonement and his, di- his atoning death was in fact accepted by the father. And in fact, the forgiveness of sin and redemption has been granted to us in total, in complete. So it's both of that. It's both of this. Because of his resurrection that we have the life that God gives us. And it's because of his resurrection that we have an undying hope of the certainty of God's promises. They're both true. And it's a hope that is certain and it's confident. I think one captured it this way. Well, speaking of this hope, he says, This hope is not a desperate holding on to a faded dream, a dead hope, but a living one, founded on reality, for it is grounded in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. As Paul argued, because Jesus really did shatter the gates of death and exists now as our living Lord, those who have committed themselves to him share in his life and can expect to participate fully in it in the future. It's a living hope. It's another thing that he says came from this new birth. And it is this. Is born to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. It's the second result then of the new birth is you've received an inheritance. An inheritance. And of course, this is connected to the hope. They're intertwined. Our hope is in receiving the inheritance that is promised. They go together. This idea of inheritance, I'm just going to mention this briefly, is is in fact a central promise to the people of God through all ages. Remember, hope is is this confidence in receiving something that we don't yet have. It's, it's this confidence that these things that are not yet will in fact be true. That's what hope is. It has a forward-looking reality to it. That's why it's hope. That's why in heaven we won't need hope because our faith will be sight. It won't be something in the future. It'll be a present reality. But for here, it is hope. And that's the idea behind inheritance. And inheritance is not something that we have in terms of God's promise. It's something that God told us that he will give to us. Now, in the Old Testament, of course, the idea of inheritance, as you read the Old Testament, was central to the hope of God's old covenant people under the Mosaic covenant, particularly reflected even of the Abrahamic covenant. He promised to them a land. He promised to them a people. And so he gave them a promise. And so they always, they spoke of the inheritance primarily in terms of this promise of the land, which they never had in total and incomplete. They never had the full realization of this promise. It was always something that was an inheritance to be gained. Because the, the inheritance to the Old Testament saint was far more even than just the land. It was not less than the land, but it was more than the land. It was being in the land filled with the glory of God and with righteousness. It was being in the land under the lordship of the promised Davidic king who would rule in righteousness and with truth and with the rod of iron. 
It was being in the land free from any threat of outside enemies. It was being in the land in perfect fellowship with God as his people. That's what it was to them, ultimately. That was their hope and the inheritance, and they never realized that. They never realized that. But it was something that was promised, and we would hold that it's still a promise yet to be fulfilled on this earth. Not everybody does, I know that. But we would hold that it is an inheritance that they will experience that. They will be given the land. They will be there with all of the redeemed. And Christ will reign over them as the righteous ruler, the descendant of David, just as he promised. How does he mean it here, though? Remember, he's writing from a decidedly Jewish perspective. How does he mean the inheritance here? The inheritance, though, is much more than what the Old Testament saying hoped in. It is ultimately the inheritance of everything that Christ has gained for us that will be realized, as he says at the end of verse 5, in a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. It's a glorious inheritance. It's the realization of every promise that we have in Christ. And he describes it in these three ways, to assure to us the, the unfading reality, the unshakable reality of this inheritance to encourage us in what it is, what is ours, what has been gained for us. And notice what he does here. He says in verse 4, it's to, to obtain an inheritance, uh, obtain is implied, it's literally to an inheritance, imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away. And what's noticeable about that is he uses only negative terms to describe it. He uses only negative terms. Why? Because... It's so much more glorious than anything we can compare it to in this world. The best he can do is say what it's not like and point us to what it is like because the glories are so great and they're so wonderful and they're so unspeakable. He can only do it through negative descriptions. But these negative descriptions tell us quite a bit. He says, first, this inheritance that you have, it's imperishable. It's imperishable. And the basic idea is that it's not subject to decay or destruction. It's not a word used a lot in the New Testament, but when it is used, it's used to describe God, Romans 1.23. He's going to use it later to describe the Word of God in verse 23. It describes the believer's reward that's promised to them in 1 Corinthians 9.23. It describes the resurrection body in 1 Corinthians 15. It describes the imperishable virtue of a gentle and a quiet spirit and a godly wife in 1 Peter 3.4. In this context, what he... He's, he's emphasizing to us the permanence then of this inheritance. Unlike any earthly inheritance where moth and, moth and rust destroy, where thieves can break in and steal, this is an inheritance that cannot be destroyed or taken away in any shape or measure. It is a promise that cannot be changed. It is an inheritance that is imperishable. Whatever is built or promised in this world, again, is temporary at best. It's subject to... To change. Ecclesiastes talks about that, doesn't it? Even the things that a man builds up by his wisdom and his hard work here is gonna, could blow away in the next generation or even in their lifetime. Nothing is permanent. But the inheritance is permanent. Their home was subject to change. Their circumstances subject to change. But he's saying your inheritance is not subject to change. It can't be destroyed. Your nation can be destroyed. Your life can be destroyed here on earth. Your relation, uh, different relationships can be destroyed, but your inheritance cannot be destroyed. 
and it cannot be taken away. And this is a particular word of encouragement to those who have suffered loss, displacement, the losing of the things in this world. Is that important? Sure. What happens to the suicide rates when the market crashes? They skyrocket, don't they? Why? Because that was where their hope was. It's destroyed. It's gone. There's nothing else to live for. But that's not so with Christians. He says, you have an inheritance. It doesn't matter if the stock market crashes tomorrow and you have nothing. You have an inheritance which can't be taken away. You have an inheritance that can't be destroyed because it's purchased with the blood of Christ, promised by God your Father. He says it's imperishable and it's undefiled. The basic idea here is it's not subject to sin or to evil. It's morally pure and without defect. Undefiled. He uses it to describe pure religion in James 1. He uses it to describe and even exhort to a holy marriage bed in Hebrews chapter 13, 4. Most significantly though, and we sang about this today, is he uses it to describe Christ himself. Now think of the promise that Peter is making and listen to these words from the writer of Hebrews. Okay, and make the connection. Therefore he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them for it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, here's our word, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of his people because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. It's an inheritance that's imperishable and it's undefiled because it is purchased for us and guaranteed for us by the undefiled Lord himself who has no sin, who has purified us to be partakers of it. That's why. The emphasis here then is there's nothing in it that will come in and corrupt it and decay it. You've heard it said just from an earthly point of view that every nation falls, what? Not by an external power, but by the corruption within. It's the corruption within a nation that makes them fall. It's the corruption within our own hearts that makes us fall. But here he says you have an inheritance where corruption cannot touch. What is evil cannot destroy it. In fact, and I think this is pretty striking, in Revelation, let me just read it to you. In Revelation 21 through 22, Outside of Genesis 1 and 2 are the only chapters in all of the Bible, right, that don't deal with sin, that don't deal with the world and its fallen condition. And yet, in the midst of all of these glories that he talks about of the coming new heavens and the new earth, the coming realities of heaven, it's striking that two times, actually three times, he mentions what will not be there. He says in chapter 21, verse 9, after he's made these great things about there are no more tears and God's going to dwell among men. And then he says this, but for the cowardly and the unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake of fire that burns with brimstone, which is the second death. After he described the glories of the new Jerusalem, the nations bringing their glory into it, the Shekinah glory of God illumining all of the heavens and the earth with no longer needing the sun or the moon to shine on it. And then he says this, Oh, and nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the book of the Lamb. After he talks about the glory of the new, the tree of life and the streams going out on either side of the street and the river clear as crystal coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb and these wonderful glories of heaven, he then says this, and outside are the dogs 
and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. You see, that's what he's saying. There's an inheritance that is pure. It's bound up into the very holiness of God, a holiness that you have been made to partake of by the new birth, by the work of Christ, the sprinkling of his blood. It is an inheritance which sin will never, never defile. We're never corrupted. In fact, when God brings this inheritance about, not only will everything within yourselves be removed that still contain the principle of sin, but sin will be utterly cast out. Nothing will enter into this perfection of God's inheritance promised to His people that is unholy, that would rob God of His glory and you of your joy. That's unlike anything we could inherit in this world. Even the greatest riches, the greatest kingdom, the greatest estate is still tainted with sin and still subject to change, but he's saying your inheritance here will not. Every part of your inheritance shines with the moral perfection and holiness of God himself, whose holiness we will know and share in as we never could here. Never could, but we will on that day when we receive bodies imperishable, undefiled, When we receive spiritual bodies, no longer subject to decay, no longer with the presence of sin. And then he gives this last description of it, which is really quite wonderful, as they are. He says it's an inheritance which is imperishable. It's undefiled, and it will not fade away. Reserved in heaven for you, it will not fade away. It's unfading. The only time in the New Testament this word is used. Now, probably every husband here, I hope so, every husband here, can remember that moment. I do. I probably don't tell Trish enough, but uh, I tell her sometimes that I can remember that moment when I was standing up at the altar and she came down for the first time. And it was like, I don't know, it's probably bad theology. It was like an angel floating <laughs> down there. She was the most beautiful bride to me. I thought to myself, I distinctly had the thought, she is the most beautiful bride ever. My heart was absolutely smitten when I saw her walking down that aisle. Absolutely taken. And the privilege of entering into the covenant of marriage with her. We know that's the kind of picture that God gives of the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven in Revelation 21 as a bride adorned for her husband. As a bride adorned for her husband. And what he's saying here by this word, it will not fade away. He's he's capturing up on that idea. And he's saying, look, this is an inheritance in which its beauty will never diminish. Its glories will never lessen. Its delights will never become dull. It's an inheritance with a beauty and a glory and delights and a luster that will never fade either even in themselves or in your hearts. It's an unfading glory. It's an unfading inheritance. Never diminished. It's said sometimes, you've heard the statement, familiarity breeds contempt. And this is true in the world a lot of times. But that's not like that in heaven. After 500 billion years, the beauty of heaven will only be more beautiful in your heart. The glory of God will only be more glorious. Your satisfaction in Christ and your love for being there will only be that much greater. It will never diminish. It's an unfading inheritance with an unfading beauty and an unfading delight. That's true of our inheritance. Think about that. But at the heart of all of that isn't the external things. It is that the inheritance, George 
Vidalis was meditating on this verse. He brought it up in men's meeting yesterday. And it was so true. He's exactly right. The ultimate heart of this inheritance, though it includes all these other things, streets of gold, the temple, and so forth, is God himself. God. Listen to the psalmist. He says, The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. In your presence is fullness of joy. Whom have I in heaven but you? And beside you I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. As for me, the nearness of God is my good. Lamentations in the midst of destruction of Jerusalem and horrors all around him. Jeremiah says, The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I have hope in him. While there are streets of gold, glorious descriptions of the new Jerusalem, beauties and wonders untold, glories and lusters that we can only dream about in our wildest dreams, the true glory of the beauty of the inheritance is God himself. In other words, the Christian's hope is not material, it's relational. It's relational. It's not the gain of physical pleasures. It's not like those who believe in Allah and the promises there, the 70 virgins all to yourself for eternity. That doesn't give a Christian any hope. The hope is relational. God himself being in his presence, the unceasing pleasures of being in the presence of God in eternal fellowship and nearness unhindered by the presence of sin. That's the hope of the believer. And that's the inheritance here that he promises. And he says it's kept in heaven for you. And I'll just have to mention this. It's kept in heaven for you. God who gave it, God who chose you, God who created it, God who sustained you, is the God who gave you this promise, is the God who keeps this promise in heaven for you. It's an inheritance that you don't have now, but it is there. It's ready. It's nothing else to be perfected. There's nothing else to be added to it. It's just waiting for God to reveal it. That's the only thing. Jesus said, I desire they, meaning his people, to be with me where I am, he said in John 17. And we will be with him where he is. And he has for us an inheritance with him that he will reveal at the right time and in the last time. He says, I desire them to be with me. You ever think about Christ desires. Christ is in heaven. If you know him, longing for you to be with him. It's like he's eager and waiting until you'll be with him in his presence to share in his glory, to behold his glory, to share in everything that he's purchased for you. And he's guaranteed it by... This promise as well, who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Who are protected? You. He doesn't just say it generally. He says it's reserved in heaven for you. You could put your name there. You, personally. It's there for you. Our name is graven on his hands, right? We sang it by name. And it's reserved and it's kept there and it's protected. You are protected by the power of God through faith for this salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Nothing can take it away. This is perseverance of the saints. This is the perseverance of the saints. And this is a particularly precious promise too. Why? Well, because when we look at ourselves and we look at the threats around us, we can think, can't I lose it though? That's a pretty wonderful promise. But can't I sin? Couldn't I fall away from the Lord? Might I do something that forfeits this inheritance and everything that he promised? And Peter reminds him, no. Nothing can take that away. Not even you can take that away. It's it's an inheritance that's purchased for you by Christ himself. And the very reality of the inheritance and even the life 
and the faith that guarantees that inheritance was purchased by Christ and it's given to you. Nothing can take it away. Nothing. It is protected. Look at what he says in verse 5. By the power of God. It could no be more taken away than God's power could be overthrown. Then God could be made a liar. Then Christ's sacrifice could be less than perfect and atoning for our sins. It could no more be taken away than that God's word could be broken. It's, a, it's an inheritance that's protected by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And you know what? Peter particularly knew the blessing of this, didn't he? Because Peter's faith failed pretty badly. This is, again, part of God's mercy in how he gave his scripture. Peter knew what it was like for his faith to fail. He knew what it was like to come to a moment of decision and pressure and go the wrong way. But he also knew what it was like to have Christ tell him at the supper, I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. doesn't mean that it won't fail in instances. doesn't mean that it won't fail in moments. It means it won't ultimately fail. If somebody's faith ultimately fails, then in the word of John, it just simply means they never belonged to him to begin with. It was, a, it was a fake kind of faith. It was a shallow faith. It was an empty faith. It wasn't the faith that comes from the spirit working in the heart of that person through regeneration. But for those who have experienced this great grace of being born again, they have been given, you have been given, I have been given a faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I'll tell you, I don't know about you, but I struggled for a lot of the years of my salvation or with assurance. With assurance. And God's used a variety of things over the years. I know some of you too. But one of the things that God has provided that gives me such assurance that I have this day is this. I've seen God preserve my faith over 20 years. I've been in Christ over 20 years and I've seen my own heart. I've seen the reality of my sin. I've seen how easily I could slip into unbelief and I've seen God preserve my faith. That, more than anything else, experientially, gives me the assurance that I belong to Christ because I've seen him keep me. I've seen the change. I've seen him work. And that's essentially what he's encouraging them with here. He's saying, you have a faith. Yes, it may be weak. You may experience fear. It may fail at time. But ultimately, Christ who is your intercessor, who purchased your salvation, who purchased your faith, who purchased your life, will keep that by the power of God for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. God keeps you. God keeps you. And he will keep you even to the end. And the full experience of all that he's promised to us in Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your promises, which are so precious and so sweet. Help us to have our minds set on the things above where you are, O Christ, even as we sang about this morning. And help us to understand that our inheritance, our salvation in Christ is something imperishable. It's undeviled. It will not fade away. It's guaranteed, kept in heaven for us, even right now, ready to be revealed at the time that you have appointed by your own wisdom and for your own glory. Help us to keep our minds set on that day and keep us faithful to the end with this living hope. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. And we'll have a closing hymn. Maybe one verse. Thanks.